We'll say we are in uh, Daniel chapter 9 again today. I'll probably be here again next week. I know we'll be here next week and maybe a couple after. We're going to start today by introduction in Deuteronomy 29. And then we'll be right to Daniel 9. So if you are turning in your Bible, take a look at uh, Deuteronomy and at chapter 29. And then uh, we will be right to Daniel 9 in uh, just a minute or two. Daniel chapter 9 contains one of the most fascinating prophecies in the Scripture and one of the most debated prophecies in the Scripture. There are several views regarding exactly what God was revealing to Daniel. I obviously have a viewpoint, of course, every Bible student does, but I'm also certain that I don't have every detail all figured out when it comes to when it comes to Bible prophecy. But there are at least two guiding principles that have to direct us as we look at this prophecy, or any prophecy, or any other scripture for that matter. Now, two, at least two guiding principles. The first one is this, what method of interpretation are we going to use? And then, and then the second principle is, is God done with national Israel? And by national Israel, I mean Israel as a nation, not just as individuals. We know God is working in every ethnic group of the world and in, 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 uh, as far as individuals are concerned and drawing people to Christ. But is God done with national Israel? Some people say he is. I do not believe he is, but some people say he is. So when you look at Bible prophecy, or, or any scripture, you, you determine what method of interpretation am I going to use, and is God done with national Israel? Uh, I, I firmly believe that God intended for his word to be understood by the average person. I do not believe that God intended that his word only be understood by people with PhDs in theology. Many of our spiritual forefathers died, literally died, were, were martyred, laboring to put the scriptures into the hands of the average person. William Tyndall, who lived back in the 1500s, was working on one of the very first English translations of the Bible. He was having dinner with a priest of a different denominational group than he was, having dinner with a priest one evening, and he was discussing and debating theology and his Bible translation work, and Tyndall got very upset about some of the things that were being, that, that, that were being said and claimed, and Tyndall is recorded as saying, if God grants me life before many years pass, he says, I will see that the boy behind his plow knows more of the scriptures than you do, he said to the priest. He was aiming to accomplish that by translating the Bible into the language of the average person so they could read the Bible and obey God. He, he finished his translation and a few years later was burned at the stake because of what he had done. And I want you to look at this verse, if you would, Deuteronomy 29, 29. We've talked about it before. If you're a Bible highlighter, Bible marker, please mark this verse, highlight it, make a notation of it. It is a verse you'll want to come back to again and again and again, where Moses says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. 
Let me read it again. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Okay, there are some things we do not know, some things God has not told us, some things God is not going to tell us. There are some secret things and God doesn't tell us all about everything. We wouldn't be able to handle it if he did. So there are some secret things that belong to God. But he says the things which are revealed, our entire scripture, belong to us and to our children forever. Why? So that we can do all the words of this law. We cannot obey what we cannot understand. So I am convinced that God's intention is for us to understand what he says so we can do what he says. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which God has revealed belong to us and our children forever, so we can do all the words of the law. We can't obey what we can't understand. So I am convinced God's intention is for us to understand what He says. Therefore, we look at Scripture plainly. We just take a straightforward, natural understanding of the words. We look at the words in an ordinary way. We ask ourselves, who is speaking to whom is he speaking? What's the setting? Where are they? Who's there? What did God say? How did he say it? What words did the Holy Spirit use? We ask ourselves all those questions just looking for the plain, straightforward, natural way of understanding the Scripture. Now, are there some challenging passages? There are. But 95% of the things you read in the Bible, you can figure it out. God is not trying to be mysterious. There are some things that are obviously figurative, and, and often there are clues to understanding that figure of speech. But, but we do not approach the Scripture thinking that everything is symbolic, that everything means something mysterious, that every rock and stick and river and mountain is just a symbol of something. God intended for the average person to read the Bible and understand it enough to obey Him. So we strive to interpret the Bible plainly. And when you do that, then you will realize that God still has plans for national Israel, which we will see once again today. For almost 2,000 years, Israel was unknown as a nation. So there was a temptation among Bible students to ignore God's promises to national Israel or to make them symbolize something else. Because there was no nation of Israel or anything that even looked like there ever would be a nation of Israel. So, But interestingly, the Hebrew people as a distinct ethnic group have continued to survive for the last 4,000 years even though many times they have been scattered all over the world. Arnold Toynbee was a famous British historian, born in the late 1800s, he passed away in the mid-70s. But he was writing once, he was, a, he was a brilliant ancient historian, and he said, As for long life, the Jews live on, the same distinct people today, long ages after the Phoenicians and Philistines have lost their identity. Their ancient Syriac neighbors have gone into the melting pot and been reminted, while Israel has, been, has proven impervious to this transformational chemistry to which all Gentiles in turn succumb. And what he meant in his eloquent British way is that all of the Gentile groups of the world eventually go into the world's melting pot and come out with new forms and identities. 
But the Jews just keep rolling along with their distinct identity for the last 4,000 years. And that is a cultural, ethnic miracle that could only be possible because God preserved them. Why? Because he has purposes for them. God, God has been regathering his special ethnic group in their ancient land, I believe, in preparation for the fulfilling of the rest of his promises and for the rest of his purposes. Do you know that the nation of Israel today, right now, has about the same amount of land area, the same number of square miles, as if you took Glacier County and Flathead County and put them together? That's it. That's the whole nation of Israel. Glacier County and Flathead County. You put those two counties together, that would be as big as the whole nation of Israel is right now. About 8,000 square miles, 9 million people. Yet it's in the geographic center of the world. It's in the international news almost weekly, if not more. So you got one tiny little piece of real estate about the same size as two Montana counties and a tiny fraction of the world's population, 7 billion people in the world and only 9 million in Israel, just a tiny fraction of the world's population, yet totally embroiled in international affairs all the time. There is absolutely no human reason why Israel should exist as a nation or why she should be such a huge player on the world stage. No human reason. But God is obviously at work. So back to our thoughts on plain interpretation. If you want to turn to Daniel chapter 9. If you were with us perhaps last week, you remember Daniel's reading the scroll of Jeremiah. And he sees that God said that they would be in Babylon for 70 years. They would only be in Babylon for 70 years. And when Daniel reads that, he doesn't scratch his head and say, Boy, I wonder what that means. 70 years. Hmm. There's got to be some symbolism in there somewhere. There are people who do that. But Daniel does not do that. Daniel, he reads 70 years. You know what he thinks it means? 70 years. And so he falls on his knees and he begins to pray. I mean, he's, like, he's been there like 68, 69 years. And he's thinking, it's almost over. He, he realizes that the Babylonian chastisement by God is almost over. So he begins to pray with his heart of repentance, getting ready for what God was about to do. God sends the angel Gabriel to Daniel with this very interesting vision. We're going to read it today. We looked last week at Daniel's prayer in those first early, in this, the first 20 or so verses of chapter 9. But we want to read what was that vision that the angel Gabriel gave Daniel about coming times ahead. Let's read it. And we'll start in verse 23. Daniel 9, verse 23. <clears throat> At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, this is Gabriel speaking, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And this is the vision of what we call the 70 weeks, or the 77s. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. 
Therefore, know and understand that from the going forth of the command to rebuild, uh, restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. On the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And I know some of you are thinking, wait a minute, Pastor, you just said we aim to interpret the Bible plainly. What in the world is the angel Gabriel talking about? Well, my prayer is that by the time we get done with our study of this, you will see that it's not quite as mysterious as it initially seems. We cannot answer every detail, but I believe we can see the picture God is describing for Daniel. This week, we are just going to try to unravel verse 24. And then we'll work on the rest of this interesting prophecy. Uh, so let's look at verse 24 again. Read that, and then we'll take this one apart a piece at a time. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. The word translated weeks in Hebrew, Shavuah, means 77s. It doesn't specify where it's a group of seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years, or whatever. So whenever you see the term, you have to get what the seven is from the context or the verses around it. Be like me walking into a bakery someplace and looking at the person behind the counter and saying, Give me a dozen. And they say, Okay, a Dozen of what? That, that's what this word is used. The word weeks, translated weeks, just means sevens. So we say sevens of what? Well, nearly all conservative Bible students believe that it refers to years. Not weeks of days, but weeks of years. Groups of sevens of years. Why is that? Well, several reasons. One, Daniel was already thinking in sevens of years. Verse 2, he was thinking about the 70 years prophecy, so he was thinking in terms of years. Also, Jews had the concept of years in groups of sevens of years. For example, the Sabbath rest of the land was to occur every seven years, as we saw last week. After seven groups of seven years, the 49th year came a year known as the Jubilee year, and all the land rested, all the land returned to their original families, all debts were forgiven, all slaves were freed. So a multiple of these groups of sevens of years, very familiar to Jewish thinking. The only other time Daniel ever used this term, Shavuot, or seven, he uses it in chapter 10, verse 2 and 3, and he talks about three full weeks and three whole weeks. So what he's using there is the concept or word for days. He doesn't do that here. And also, we don't want to miss the whole context of this passage. They've been in Babylon for 70 years. If you were with us last week, you remember from last week, they were in Babylon for 70 years, because they had neglected to give the land its Sabbath rest every seven years. 
Remember 2 Chronicles 36.21, we, we mentioned it last week, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, talking about the captivity. He says to fulfill that word until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. They had violated 70 Sabbaths. How many years would it take you to violate 70 Sabbaths? 490. And so Gabriel now tells Daniel, you figured out, Daniel, from reading the prophecy of Jeremiah, you figured out that, the, that you're in the land for 70 years, and you understand that the, that the people of, the, of Judah did not give the land its seven-year Sabbath rest for the last 490 years, and so God said, I'm going to take you out of the land, and I'm going to let the land rest for 70 years to catch up on its Sabbaths. So Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, guess what, Daniel? There's another 77s planned for the nation. We can be quite confident that he meant years. So 77s, 490 years are determined. The Hebrew word there means to, determine, means to cut out or carve out or block out, we might say. So Gabriel tells Daniel 490 years will be blocked out on God's prophetic calendar, specifically for the Jewish people and Jerusalem. So this is a distinctive Jewish prophecy relating to them and the city of Jerusalem. Many of Daniel's other visions related to great uh, Gentile empires of the world, but this one is all about the Jews and Jerusalem. That will be important to keep in mind as we work our way through this in these next few weeks. But this verse, fascinating verse here in verse 24, that God gives six purposes for this blocked out period of time. There's this 490 years of time relating to the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. And God says, I've got six purposes to fulfill in this time period. The first one, he says this, to finish the transgression. Literally, the word finish means to, to firmly restrain the transgression. That is, there's sin, transgression meaning to sin, to go beyond the law, to trespass, to move beyond what God says. And in this world that we are living in today, sin has the freedom to express itself. But there's coming a day when that will not be the case. There's coming a day, the angel Gabriel says, when every time sin rears its head, it will be crushed. It's going to be firmly restrained. The freedom of sin to express itself will be over. All apostasy will be over. All false doctrine will be over. All crime will be gone. All lying will be over. All cheating will be done. All evil is going to come under divine control. He's going to finish the transgression. He's going to, in a sense, put it in a headlock so it can't move. He's going to restrain it totally. We'll see how the fulfillment of that plays out in just a moment. Number two, he says, not only to finish the transgression, but to make an end of sins. Not only will sin be dealt with in general, finishing the transgression, but sins individually will be dealt with as well. The idea is that not only will God deal with just the general concept of sin, God will deal with specific sins, so God is going to wipe out sin and its effects. 
Number three, he says, I'm going to finish the transgression, make an end of sins. And he says, I'm going to, uh, to make reconciliation for iniquity. This is the usual word, reconciliation, for atonement. Yeah, he says, I'm going to cover iniquity. I'm going to cover sin. So there's coming a time when God is going to deal with sin in general. He's going to deal with individual sins, and he's going to deal with it by bringing an atonement for those sins. Summing up all those three, they're going to, they all refer to getting rid of sin. And you know, I'm sure as Daniel is listening to this, it would be such an incredible blessing to him because he knows that the reason why he's in Babylon is because of sin. The reason why the Jewish people are in Babylon for 70 years is because of their sin. And so when Gabriel says, you know what, you guys defiled the Sabbath for 490 years, but there's another 490 years, Daniel, and God is going to finish transgression, he's going to make it into sins, and he's going to make reconciliation for iniquity. God is going to get rid of sin, Daniel. This next 490 years, it's going to be beautiful when it's all said and done, because God is going to get rid of sin. And I honestly believe that what the Spirit of God is speaking of here has to be the coming of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. It was on the cross that sin in general was dealt with. Christ destroyed the works of the devil, 1 John chapter 3 tells us. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He's going to, he's going to, he's, he's squashing the devil, smashing his head. It was on the cross that sins individually were dealt with as he bore them in his body. 1 Peter chapter 2 says Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. It was on the cross that atonement was made. And I, and I see in those first three purposes of the 77s a picture of the cross and its marvelous and amazing provision for sin. We not only had the general problem of the curse of our sin nature taken care of at the cross, but we also received from the cross of Christ the forgiveness of every individual sin. So sin has been dealt with. Our sin was permanently covered at the cross. The Old Testament sacrifices only temporarily covered sin, but the cross of Christ permanently covered sin. As we read in our Bible study time just an hour ago, that great passage in Hebrews 10, that Jesus Christ made one sacrifice for sins forever. So number four then, he says, I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. What a great exchange. You do away with sin and you bring in everlasting righteousness. Uh, the, the permanent righteousness of eternity. Righteousness takes permanent control. And that's going to come during the reign of Christ on the earth that we call the millennium. Remember that Old Testament folks never saw the distinction between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ and the gap in between that that we call the church age. So you can have a prophecy in the Old Testament that comes right to the cross and is followed immediately by a prophecy of the kingdom because that gap or the church age was not revealed until God revealed it through the Apostle Paul. So the first three purposes are how God's going to deal with sin at the cross. The next three are how he's going to establish eternal righteousness in his millennial kingdom. 
Do you remember the disciples after Jesus had been crucified and He rose from the dead and He spent 40 days on earth with them and He met them out near the Mount of Olives where He was going to ascend back up into heaven. you remember what His disciples said to Him? Lord, are You now going to give the kingdom back to Israel? See, they're still looking for the kingdom. They were still looking at the Old Testament prophecies that, that brought them to the cross and then immediately into the kingdom. Jesus said to him, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has put in his power. In other words, I'm not going to tell you exactly when I'm coming back. But then you remember he ascends up into heaven. They're watching him go up. The two angels say, why are you guys standing here staring at him going up in the clouds? They said, this same Jesus that you saw go up is going to come back in exactly the same way that he went up. Now he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so what we have between to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, we've got the whole church age that even the disciples initially did not understand because that was not revealed until the Apostle Paul. So we've got the first three of these fulfilled at the first coming of Christ at the cross. We've got the next three that are going to be fulfilled when Christ comes back the second time. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness Number five, he says he's going to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, there'll come an end to revelation. There'll be an end to prophecies. There's going to come an end to visions. Why? Because in Christ's great and glorious kingdom, when it's finally established, full knowledge is going to be ours. We are going to know and understand all that we need to know and understand. There'll be no need for further revelation from God. Full knowledge will be ours. And then finally, an interest, very interesting Purpose number six, to anoint the most holy. This would seem to refer to the holy of holies in the temple. According to Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, it appears that there is going to be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem during the millennium, during the thousand year reign of Christ. Now there's a lot of discussion among Bible students as to exactly why or precisely what will be done there or for what purpose. But it does seem very clear that there will be a millennial temple in Jerusalem. And I believe what these last three are saying is that in the millennial kingdom with everlasting righteousness and with full knowledge of God, as the prophet Habakkuk said, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters that cover the sea. There will also be the establishing of a kingdom temple. And I'm pretty sure that Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 very clearly indicates that. It's the restored temple of the millennial kingdom. And Christ, the Messiah, the angel Gabriel says to Daniel, Christ, the Messiah, the coming prince, he is going to do all this. The first three purposes are, were fulfilled in His first coming. The last three will be fulfilled in His second coming. And can you imagine the awesome sense of God's presence that Daniel experienced? After 68, 69 years of living in Babylon, 
surrounded by false religion, surrounded by immorality, isolated from everything he had ever known, yet he served God faithfully, spending his entire life in the government service of pagan kings, representing the God of heaven, standing mostly alone for the Lord, blessed in his work, honored in his testimony for 69 years, and now as an old man, probably in his late 80s, beloved by the Lord, the angel Gabriel comes to him and says, Daniel, yeah, the 70 years in Babylon's about up, but guess what? It's not over for Israel. Not only will the people return to the land, but the Messiah is coming. And these next verses we'll look at next week, he, he, he pretty much tells them exactly when the Messiah is going to appear. You can, you can figure it out. We'll figure it out next Sunday with you. Yeah, he tells, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel exactly when the Jewish people could expect the Messiah to show up. They all missed it, of course, almost everyone. But Gabriel says, Daniel, it's not over for Israel. Not only will the people return to the land, but the Messiah's coming. He is going to deal with our sin problem once and for all. He is going to bring in everlasting righteousness. It will happen. And here's the timetable for God's plan to unfold. What an incredible window into the infinite mind of God. Man's failure corrected by God's grace. 490 years of defiled Sabbaths balanced by 490 years of God's plan of redemption. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Do you know our awesome, incredible, infinite God have you bowed in submission to Him and asked Him to deal with your sin? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, bringing the world back to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, not counting them against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are an ambassador for Christ. You are to be representing Him everywhere you go. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, which I encourage you to be today. What a joy it will be to see our Messiah bring in everlasting righteousness. I pray that you will be there too. We plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made reconciliation for iniquity. Have you received Him as your Savior? Let's pray. Father, help us as we look toward these last days, these end times. We know, Lord, there are some who look at these passages we just read today and they think it's all just a big symbol. It all means something else. It doesn't really mean specifically, definitely, literally what it says. Lord, we're not taking your word that way. We believe that Gabriel told Daniel exactly what was going to happen, exactly what the Messiah was going to do, exactly what his purposes would be for coming. And Lord, we're thankful that you have made an end of our sin. And you have made reconciliation for iniquity on the cross. 
And you're calling out to this whole world to, to come to you, to be reconciled to God, to be brought back and made right with you. Lord, may we be good ambassadors for Christ, preaching the message, sharing the gospel, living for the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.